everyone. Welcome to VLGA Connect. It is the weekly... Go oh, hang on. I can't say that. Um, it's, it's the governance update back again after a break of a week. Steve Cooper, hello. What happened to you last week? Uh, Chris, I just decided to take a week off. And who knew, um, I couldn't get to Queensland, but that we'd be lucky enough to get away in that little window uh, between lockdowns, so that's what we very, doing. very good. I hope you went somewhere uh, nice and exotic. I'm, I'm assuming you didn't go overseas or interstate. Uh, we went to the exotic Belrine Peninsula, foodie paradise, Chris. Oh. Um, not known for its beaches at this time of year, but they're pleasant to walk up and down. And I did go overseas. We took the Sorrento ferry for a little jaunt. <laughs> that was it. Very good. Well, I'm I'm pleased you managed to do that. Uh, as I was saying to you before we came on air, uh, the jokes on the government, uh, new lockdown, I, I never less, left the last one. No, I just thought <laughs> you've been smashing your TV binging, I presume, Chris, and um, I've obviously hit the sports pages in the newspaper. And I noticed that. You've, you're, you're reliving the heartbreak from last night with the, the Cooker Brothers. I would have... Uh, the Cooker Brothers. The Cooker Burrows. <laughs> I would have preferred to relive the Ashley Maloney-Cedric Dubler moment. Wasn't that sensational? Oh, look, it was just terrific, Chris. And I look, I've got to say, I do get a bit cynical about the Olympics at times, but those are the moments that remind you uh, that in elite sport there are just some, yeah, some terrific things happening. You, know, you can change your background now if you oh, right now. But while you do that, um, I, I was just reflecting, uh, uh, what did we used to do before the Olympics? Because there's been wall-to-wall -wall Olympics in my house. I have to go back and check my ever-growing Netflix watch list for lockdown number six. Okay, um, that's much better, Steve. Welcome back to VLGA Connect. Let's have a look at some governance issues. There's a lot. There's a lot to talk about. Um, and the question is, where does one start? Um, this one caught my eye. I'm sure it caught your eye as well. A story in The Age about um, an ongoing saga at Yarra City Council where a council law is subject to a... Um, what do we call it, a legal process uh, and has intended or announced an intention to take extent, yes, and has announced an intention to take extended leave. But what caught my eye was that the, according to the report, the local government inspectorate has made an application to VCAT about having the councillor step aside while this process is ongoing. Is that as you understand it? Um, that's the way I read the report in the age, Chris. And I've got to say that you and I collectively may well be flummoxed by this. Um, good. Because is that a good word? It is a good word. We might have to put it up on the screen so that people can see it and spell it and look it up. <laughs> uh, flummoxed, uh, befuddled, bemused. Um, and not to be... Uh, the inspector will do what the inspector does. And um, Michael Stefan... Michael Stefano is um, a very considered individual. So I don't think anything that's happening um, is, is not well considered, but we would normally expect a matter to proceed to VCAT following the conduct of um, some sort of um, conduct panel or internal process uh, within the council. So I guess I'm a little bit confused as to the mechanisms that might've caused uh, the inspector to act of his own volition in this matter. 
So uh, let's just keep a watching brief on that. We may even reach out to the inspectorate office and see if we can find out a little bit more before our next edition. And in the meantime, we'll see what transpires. So uh, another item that caught uh, my eye, uh, Steve, relates to a situation that's unfolding up in Cairns, where according to the ABC, who's done you know, one of their investigations, um, the mayor of Cairns uh, is... Um, apparently and allegedly under investigation for um, potential corrupt conduct by the Crime and Corruption Commission. This relates to a loan of $150,000, according to the report. You've had a chance to look at this and what jumped out at you? What jumped out at me, Chris, was the opportunity to use the word gobsmacking. But um, <laughs> as you've described it, um, yes, yeah, so there is purportedly a loan from a lawyer who's... Um, uh, involved in the development industry in Cairns. Uh, my understanding is the, uh, the documentation around the loan that was made some six or seven years ago um, is brief, but and even perhaps um, non-existent, I'm not sure. And there's been no interest, but $150,000 loan apparently. Um, the really important element of that is that um, that would give rise to a conflict of interest over any matter that the person giving the loan, uh, giving a loan to a councillor or being loaned money by a councillor, um, that there ought to be a con conflict of interest declared if in fact those um, issues as reported are correct. Yes, and that last phrase I think is very important. If, if, the, if the story is correct, uh, it's suggesting that the loan was to stave off bankruptcy, which of course would have made this councillor ineligible to hold office. So there's, you know, there's a few elements to this, this issue. As, as I understand how it played out, there was a complaint to the Office of the Independent Assessor, who's looked into the matter, has referred the potential corrupt, corrupt conduct to the Crime and Corruption Commission. But there's also a councillor conduct matter on foot alleging uh, failing to declare conflict of interest, I think on 24 occasions. I guess the other thing about that one then, Chris, is you could easily file this under, it could never happen here. And mm. often it could never happen here really deserves further attention because if you boil it down what's occurred, someone, again, hypothetically, someone is finds themselves in a business situation where they take a particular action. And it might not be of the magnitude of 150,000. It might be a much smaller amount than that. No one rings a bell and says you have created a situation where you are potentially in, you know, at risk of a major conduct breach. Um, the obligation is on uh, the elected representative or the officer to know that that is so and, and to record it. And um, I think it points to me the fact that despite the apparent simplicity in Victoria of the new conflict of interest regime, that particularly around those perceptions of conduct, um, minor uh, perceptions of conflict, I should say, um, far smaller amounts, um, that a cautionary approach is, um, is worthwhile. Yes, and uh, on a related matter, Steve, uh, I do note that the Council of Conduct framework in Queensland, I think, is, is reasonably new, or at least has been under review in recent time, and the Queensland Government has recently announced funding to increase staff to deal with helping councils or councillors um, obtain more clarity, I'd put it, in uh, that conflict of interest regime. So perhaps they've identified, as I think has occurred uh, here, 
uh, over the years, uh, an opportunity to um, make the system more, um, what's the word, um, user-friendly, yeah. uh, easier to understand. Yeah. Yeah. And I think from memory, Chris, last year, there was a, um, a parliamentary inquiry in Victoria into the sort of educative functions of the integrity agencies. And you can see um, at all levels, the inspectorate, IBAC, the Ombudsman's Office, um, OVIC, um, that um, a lot of effort is made to ensuring that people have the information to enable them to make the best decisions. All right. So we're putting the links to these stories up so people can investigate them a little bit further on their uh at their own uh, leisure if they wish. Um, while we're interstate, and we'll come back to Victoria in a moment, um, just an interesting little um, impact, if you like, or side effect of the deferral of the New South Wales elections. Don't know if you saw this, Steve, but um, it's, it turns out that a lot of the mayors who've been elected um, to their current terms, those, those terms are expiring in September in many cases. The election's been deferred to December. So they have to go through this quirky little process of having to appoint a mayor for, a, for two years, uh, for two months, I'm sorry. And it'll be interesting to see how many just get sort of extended for two months or whether they, you know, the politics comes into play ahead of, an election. Do you think a two-month mayoral term would be a prize right on the the the, the door of a oh, election campaign? There'll be a broad range of views, Chris. Some would see it as a prize, some a poison chalice. So um <laughs> yeah. and, and of course, and of course, I'm assuming similar uh, caretaker period provisions would be in place as to what we have in Victoria. The thing that strikes me about that, Chris, is it's really uh, emblematic, I suppose, of the chaotic world that we live in that you know, legislation has typically been framed on the basis of we could expect that you know, the election's going to be held and so it's framed as if that date of the election is a certainty. But because of you know, COVID, climate change, advances in technology, um, the legislation hasn't been able to manage chaos. Yes, absolutely right. Hey, Chris, while we're interstate, and I haven't, um, I haven't flagged this with you, would you like to say Windsor Caribbean? I always love to say Windsor Caribbean, and um, thank you for that because there has been a development at Windsor Caribbean in the last. Uh, actually, there's been a few developments at Windsor Caribbean, if I can say that again. Oh, I only know of one. You better tell me the ones you're thinking. <laughs> well, so there's there's been the bushfire management report, an independent report into the way Windsor Windsor Caribbean Shire managed the the bushfires in 2019. Mm. 20, those black black summer bushfires, I think they call them. Um, pretty scathing report that talks about the involvement of councillors, where they shouldn't have been, the, the political point scoring and the personal attacks while a crisis was unfolding, but also the organisational capacity to respond to that crisis was found to be quite lacking. The interim administrator hasn't held back in his assessment of the findings of this report, as you may have seen. Yeah, I thought it was... Um, and that was where I was going, Chris, that... Um, uh, probably a quite similar emergency management regime to the one we have in Victoria, where there is a requirement for the council to make an emergency management plan, that there would be a Miro, an emergency resource officer appointed to take control where there is an emergency. And really the fact that uh, in an emergency situation, the role of the council is limited. They should have done their work in oversighting that strategic role. Um, which can be quite difficult, except that, of course, the mayor as spokesperson for the council hopefully um, is usually ready to go and to uh, deliver messaging in the way that the uh, 
that has come through the emergency management system and not go off the reservation. So pop quiz for you. How many councils in New South Wales are currently under administration? Chris, I don't know, but I'm thinking three. So three is on the low side. There's actually, uh, it's, it's four or five. I think it's five. Um, it's Balranald, Central Coast, Central Darlingshire. No, I'm sorry, it's four. And Windsor Caribbee, of course. But the difference with Windsor Caribbee is the suspension of the councillors is due to expire in September. The election has been deferred to December. Hence, uh, those councillors are due to return to office um, we've just mentioned the report and the comments that the interim administrator has been making, which I think are very carefully chosen words mm. because the Minister for Local Government is currently considering her legal options to see whether uh, they can avoid those suspended councillors coming back into office in September. Because as it stands, they return to their roles next month. Interesting well, situation, isn't it? And when you said the report was scathing, it referred to councillors actively engaging in sort of public communication during the emergency in a way that was contrary to the agreed plan, to uh, councillors continuing their bickering um, yeah. during what are catastrophic fires where there's really no time for that. So um, I think the minister would be concerned. Now, let's come back into Victoria. Um, you may not want to say too much about this, but it's worth uh, noting uh, there's a situation that's been unfolding at the city of Stonington, where one councillor has effectively called on the mayor to uh, call on a spill for the role of mayor. And it seems to stem from a lack of uh, confidence that the mayor has been undergoing mentoring and coaching, which I wouldn't have thought was that unreasonable um, and I'm pretty sure I know your view on that but some people have honed in on that as an example of poor use of ratepayers money yeah let's um yeah let's not go too far into the fine detail Chris the part that really concerned me about this oh and I should say of course you and I have a blatant naked self-interest in this topic oh yes um, let's declare the conflict of interest yeah <laughs> um, so anything that we're about to say people would say well Steve and Chris would say that wouldn't they um, but I think it would be a sad thing if, um, as a general rule, uh, expenditure by mayors and councillors on development relating to their roles uh, was routinely criticised when, in fact, there might be a whole range of other issues um, in regard to the context in which they're operating that would be equally deserving of review. I think so. Let's just leave that one sit there. It's still it's still playing out. Hey, Chris, um, can I segue, though? Yes, you, you may. Just for something else. Um, on Twitter, and I can highly recommend the account of Professor Janine O'Flynn of the Australian and New Zealand School of Government and also Melbourne University. And Prof O'Flynn po routinely posts um, very useful material around the law and public administration. And mm -hmm. I think you saw this one during the week as well, uh, that the professor and 14 of her colleagues wrote a very brief paper um, calling for more routine uh, review and investigation of circumstances where government performs well, mm. where government is a shining light that, um, and that there are lessons to be learned that might be translatable across other levels of government. And it, I don't know if, um, if you read that piece, Chris. 
Uh, I haven't read it all, Steve. You did send it to me. I did start to read it. It's still actually open on my desktop. It's called Rising to Ostrom's Challenge, an invitation to walk on the bright side of politics, governance and public service. And the first thing that struck me, Steve, is, is how in sync this is with the, the sentiments that Terry Moran was expressing in a recent interview I did uh, with him about you know, how the all levels of government could work more effectively in the interests of public service. Oh, absolutely, Chris. And it's, if anyone hasn't um, listened to your interview with Terry, it's worthwhile going back on the VLJ Connect channel and finding that. I was really taken, Chris, I guess I was thinking of it like in terms of sort of child psychology, that if you constantly beat up a child and, and point to their failings, you'll get a particular response and, and maybe sort of an element of positive psychology uh, for government more generally uh, would be in the public interest. So really, I commend that. And it's not a difficult read. There's a lot of pages that are references. There's really only about four or five pages of actual material um, in that in that brief paper. Excellent. All right. The link will be will be up in the show notes. Um, another one. Uh, now, I was contacted by someone pointing out to me they were a bit surprised to read that the, the new asset management plan requirement in Victoria under the Local Government Act 2020 does not need to be subject to deliberative engagement. Um, I, I was surprised because I think back at the start when we were talking about what those key strategic documents were that councils were required to put to a deliberative engagement process, I was sure the asset management plan was being mentioned in that suite of documents. Am I wrong? Uh, I was under the same impression as you, Chris, that um, the integrated strategic planning framework planning and reporting yep. framework, that the key strategic planning documents should have been subject to deliberative engagement. And like you, it was drawn to my attention that um, in the... Um, it's just eluded me. Implementation matters. <laughs> in the implementation matters email, it gets popped out from local government Victoria a, a couple of weeks ago. The comment was made that for the, um, the, the asset plan, uh, that deliberative engagement wasn't required, but it sort of begs, I guess, a bit of a rethink around what's the distinction between yeah. uh, community engagement and deliberative engagement. And surely it, it shoots back to the council's community engagement policy, which I expect would describe what deliberative engagement looks like for that particular council and when and where they're going to employ that. I, I guess you could run an argument that the work that's done around visioning council planning, your your financial plans, your rating and resourcing plan, your what have I missed, your budget, obviously, um, having been subjected to those processes uh, are going to feed into your longer term asset management plan, aren't they? So maybe they're suggesting it could be a bit of a duplication, do you think? I suspect that that's something like that. And also the capacity of organisations to deal with another round of engagement when they really haven't embedded uh, yet the findings um, of the round that led to, you know, the development of the um, uh, the community vision and the council plan. And given that the council plan was adopted before the community vision, there's probably another review of the council plan to be done. So I think sort of um, organisations will find their level in terms of how they, you know, established a sense of normalcy out of all of this. Yes, indeed. We might, Steve, reach out to LGV and just perhaps get some clarity on that in case it is a matter of confusion for some. 
Before we wrap up, a couple of notes. Uh, congratulations to Martin Horson at Mildura Rural City Council. Martin's a director there and has been chosen to step into the acting CEO role to relieve Phil Shanahan, who I'm sure is looking forward to having a rest after being in the role on an interim basis for a while. Um, you might recall, Steve, that Mildura ran a recruitment process and didn't identify a satisfactory um, candidate. So they're going to go back to the drawing board in a few months, I understand. Yeah, uh, Martin's done some terrific work um, in Mildura as a director, so good luck to him up there. We're waiting, of course, for news on uh, who's going to warm the seat at Southern Grampians when Michael Tudball moves on this, uh, this month. Uh, of course, the announcement for Brimbank and uh, Maribyrnong is all still pending. Those processes are underway. Uh, keep an eye on the CEO uh, appointment watch page on the Local Government News Roundup website to, uh, to stay up to date. Anything else, Steve, before we wrap up? This has been oh, a bumper edition. Chris, I'm exhausted. I think we've probably just about milked it this week. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll let you have a rest. Uh, go back to uh, reading the sports pages. I'm sure you have not quite done there. And uh, we'll catch up with you next week. Good day. Thanks, Chris. Steve Cooper, Chief of Staff of the VLGA, with us for the governance update from VLGA Connect.